standing here, uh, I'd like Jim to come and read this section again that we're going to look at. This would be chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Chapter 2 of James 1 through 13. James 2, 1. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring, dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If you, however, if, however, you are full, fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Well, may the Lord help us to understand this section of Scripture this morning. We, we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit to make us people that will not only understand but apply these things to our lives. You, you may be seated. I want to start with just a couple of introductory comments here related to this section of Scripture. We're just going to look at two verses this morning, verses 12 and 13. And in the past, I've tried to take bigger sections of James, uh, but I felt like these were such important verses, these two verses, that uh, we need to take some extra time on them. For one thing, they lead into the most controversial section of the book of James, which is chapter, verses 14 through 26. And uh, if you know something of church history, you know that that, that that particular portion really gave Luther a hard time 
because James says, well, he talks about being justified by works, which, of course, Luther would uh, have a problem with. Uh, So I think it's important to get a good understanding, a proper understanding of 12 and 13, which will help us a lot in understanding what James is saying in the verses that come right after that. The second thing I would say by way of introduction is that some of what I'm going to say today may be different from how you're accustomed to understanding salvation. If that's the case, if some things seem strange to you here, I would just challenge you and exhort you exhort you to examine everything carefully and hold fast to that which is good. That's all we can ever ask as we attempt to look into the Word. Examine everything carefully and hold fast to that which is good. Well, the last time that I took up this subject or this section, we looked at the subject of personal favoritism showing personal favoritism, which James says is incompatible with authentic faith in Christ. In the context of verse 27 of chapter 1, which has to do with um, keeping yourselves unstained by the world, in that context, James is saying that we should not let the world's sinful ways of judging people into the church. It's one of the sad things as you look through church history that that has happened. And it's uh, since we have so many exhortations in the scripture against that type of thing, we know that it's a real danger for us even right here today. So we need to not just think about what has happened in the past, but how it could happen right here. And I would just say to the children... Uh, Again, I brought this out last time, but this is something we need to be very careful about, children. It talks about here in verse verse 4. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? We need to be careful about this thing of making distinctions amongst ourselves uh, in terms of outward things like how tall a person is or how short they are or how they comb their hair or... I mean, you can do it in a lot of different ways. And so be careful. James says be very careful about that because if you do those things, he says, you become a judge with evil motives. We don't want to do that, do we? Jesus said, do not judge according to appearance, but judge a righteous judgment. So there's a place to make judgments about things. And you say, well, how do I know what a righteous judgment is? That's why God gave us the Bible. Look, read about Christ. See how he handled situations and how he dealt with people. Then you'll understand what it means to make a righteous judgment. So, just a, just a little word for all of us, really. As followers of Jesus Christ, we should not value others on the basis of external considerations. Things that, by and large, people have little control of. If there's one place on earth where class and caste and race and wealth 
and this type of external consideration should not matter. It's in the Church of Jesus Christ. The Church should never erect barriers because of these kinds of external considerations. When we think about what the Church is all about, we should realize that our union with Christ is what matters. Our real identity is found in Him. Doesn't matter where we're from, doesn't matter how much money we have, that that stuff is irrelevant in relationship to what God has done for us in Christ. We can have unity, you see, in the midst of diversity, all kinds of diversity in the church, but there can be unity because we're not looking at those external things. The, The distinctions that the world uses do not define us anymore. Christ is all and in all. When a church shows personal favoritism, we know that it's somehow it's been stained by the world. So those are some things that we looked at last time. And what the example that James uses here of showing personal uh, favoritism has to do with the rich uh, coming into the congregation and being shown special favor in that situation. And he gives some reasons why this is wrong, and I'm just going to review them very quickly. In doing this, you are setting yourself up as a judge with evil motives, he says. So it's wrong because of that. You're also showing disfavor to the ones that God often shows great favor to. That is the disadvantaged and despised of the world. So you're doing just exactly opposite of what God would do towards the disadvantaged and the despised of the world. Besides that, you're showing favor to the people, that is, in this case, the rich, who often oppress the people of God. So uh, obviously that's wrong too. Uh, But he says, most importantly, any attitude of personal favoritism goes against God's royal law, the law of love. Christ calls this the royal law because of it being given to us by the king. It's given to us by the king, and it's the primary law of the kingdom. So it's a royal law. And it has to do with how we treat others. It's a law written on the heart of all new covenant believers. The law that summed up, really it sums up all the other laws concerning our relationships with other people. So you see that in verse, verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality... You are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Transgressors. So, again, I say this is the law written on the heart of everyone in the New Covenant. It's, it's what the Holy Spirit puts there when we put our trust in Christ. What James is presenting here is that favoritism violates the law of love for your neighbor as it was explained and emphasized and expanded on by Christ. He took that Old Testament law and explained it, expanded it, and emphasized, this is what is for my people. Listen to this. This is where the heart of the matter is, he was saying, related to this law of love. His church is forbidden to discriminate against anyone on the basis of their status in the world's eyes, things like wealth, for instance. 
So we ended last time by saying that we should be very concerned if we sense this attitude of partiality creeping in in any way in our thinking, viewing some people as less worthy of our favor because of outward, external, worldly, selfish considerations. Instead of that, we should recognize all people as people made in the image of God and as sinners equally in need of the grace and mercy of God. That's the way we view people. That's a person, that whoever that is standing before you, that's a person made in the image of God. It's also a person that's a sinner fallen from that image, needing to know of the grace and mercy of God in Christ. So that brings us then to these two verses that we're going to look at this morning, verses 12 and 13, where James returns to the dominant theme of this section of the letter, which is the importance of actually doing God's will, doing what God has said. Uh, He starts it by saying this, so speak and so act. What's that mean? That means we're talking about what you do, what you say and what you do. So speak, and let's, let's just read these two verses because this is where we're going to zero in this morning. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty, for judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. He tells us, again, back on this emphasis here, we have to do the will of God. We have to live the word of God. So, so speak and so act as those who are going to be judged by the law of liberty. So he adds a very sobering aspect to this thing of, of doing God's will and God's word. He says you're going to be judged by that. You're going to be judged by whether we keep this law of liberty. Now, that's a, a phrase that he's already used once. If you, if you turn back to chapter 1, you might, hopefully you would remember that we talked about this when we were in chapter 1. He says this, But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. So again, right there he's talking about you have to do You have to live by this law of liberty. Now, we said that this law of liberty is the new covenant, Christ-centered understanding of God's law. The law as it was fulfilled and explained and expanded by Christ in his apostles. It's the law of liberty because Christ has mercifully liberated us from the penalty of the broken law. So there's the liberty part of it. He's He's liberated us from the penalty of the broken law and has graciously given us his spirit by which we may have power to obey his word, to obey that law. So he's put his spirit within us to make it so that we can live according to this law of liberty. The way James uses this phrase, the law of liberty, makes me think that he thought when he used it, people would understand what he was saying. They would have a real concept of when he says when I when he uses this phrase the law of liberty they knew what he meant. 
And the reason I think that was the case is because they, if they were Christians, which this is who he is addressing here, brothers, sisters, he's, he's saying, you know what Christ taught. You know what he told us, how he lived, what he's done for us. So you understand at least something of this law of liberty. And of course, that law had to be centered on Christ and his love for them. Love was the center of Christ's teaching and the center of his life. His people recognized that they'd been set free because of the love of Christ that was shown there on the cross. And they also recognized that they had been set free from their sin now to go out and declare and demonstrate Christ's love to the world around them. So what the world should see in the church is not any kind of partiality or selfishness, but love, the love of Christ. That's what they should see in the church. And this is what Christ taught, of course, John thirteen thirty four. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. That's the royal law. That's the law of liberty. And it's what has been put on the heart of every new covenant believer, every true believer in Christ. John says it a different way. He says that old commandment of loving one another is now new in him and in you. He's taken that old commandment, which was external, and he's put it internal, and he's expanded on it, so much so that now that commandment means that we're to love as Christ loved. That's deeper, that's higher, that's much more profound than what that Old Testament law of love had uh, loving your neighbor as yourself meant to anyone. That's this law of liberty that we have in Christ. He set us free to love. Christ has set us free to love. A good cross-reference on this section is this section in James is Galatians 5:13 and 14. It says this. Now listen. Listen carefully here. For you were called to freedom. There's the law, the liberty part, you see. You were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into the to an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Through love serve one another. There's our the command. Through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word word in this statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you do not consume one another. So there's a warning there to the Galatians. But I, I think that James apparently felt like there was some of this biting and devouring going on in these various groups he was writing to. Or at least he was worried about it uh, happening there. So he... He writes what he does here, and uh, he gives a very strong warning, about as strong as you could possibly give in these verses that we're looking at here. He says, don't forget that this law of liberty 
is what you will be judged by. That's what he's saying in these verses. So speak and so act as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. How we treat others is the evidence of our relationship to Christ. The liberating love of Christ is our standard of life and authentic faith will work through love. What matters in the Christian life is faith working through love. Uh, you find that in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. Circumcision or uncircumcision means nothing, but faith working through love. What counts with God is the kind of faith that by its very nature produces love. Now, I think it is important in the midst of this type of a message to make a clear distinction. Neither Paul in Galatians or anywhere else would he was writing on this subject, nor James would say that we are saved by faith plus works of love. That's not what he's saying. What they are saying, what Paul and James and the other New Testament writers are saying, is that a true faith works through love. A true faith will work through love. Because, why is that? Because faith unites us with Christ. The true Christian always has, Christ, has a Christ-shaped heart of mercy and love. If, you're, if, you, if faith unites you with Christ, then that is, that's going to show in your life. The true Christian always has a Christ-shaped heart of mercy and love. It's a faith in Christ. It's, in, it's faith in Christ alone that gives us a right standing with God. But that faith is never alone. It's always accompanied by spirit-empowered love. I like the way John Piper said it. He says, love is the natural fruit and necessary evidence of being justified by faith. I would change it just a little. I'd say love is the supernatural fruit. But he was trying to show what he was trying to get a po- uh, across was that this is what flows out when Christ is in. This is what comes out. Yeah. Love is the natural fruit and necessary evidence of being justified by faith. Love is the kind of law that governs us when we are freed from condemnation by the blood and righteousness of Christ and we will be judged under the law of liberty. That's what's, that, that law of love is what is going to flow. It's going to come out. But we're also, there's going to be a day when we're going to stand before God. And as James says, so speak and so act as those who are going to be judged by the law of liberty. And Piper closes this quote by saying, and we need to think about this and let it sink in, if we have not loved, we will perish. Why is that? Well, it's because loveless faith is not real, authentic faith. That's the point of 
what uh, James is hitting on here. Loveless faith is not real, authentic faith. Love is the fruit that grows on the tree of faith that's rooted in Christ. It's the fruit. Love's the fruit. And it comes out just like a leaf comes out naturally from the tree. It comes out naturally, or again supernaturally, from the life of the person who's, who, who's put his faith, his or her faith, in Christ. They're rooted in Christ, and that's what's going to come out, is love. Now, here's one of the, I think, one of the biggest misconceptions of modern-day Christianity. Justification by faith is taken to mean that we can continue to live for ourselves but be right with God because we have put our faith in Christ to forgive our sins. Well, I've put my faith in Christ, so it really doesn't matter how I live because he takes away my sins. Judgment Day will show that this is a false hope, and it's a false hope because it's based on a false faith. Faith in Christ means we believe what he said, and he said a lot about what it means to follow him. And most of that was centered on this area of love. We're going to be judged on the basis of the fact that Christ has loved us so much that he died to set us free from our sins and now calls us in the power of his spirit to live a life of loving others just as he loved us. It's an incredible expansion on this law of love when you start saying we need to love as Christ loved us. The law that we as Christians will be judged by is what Christ taught, especially what he taught about his love for us and how that love would show itself in our lives. It's not an external thing. It's an internal thing now. It's not a law out here, love your neighbors as yourself. It's a law in here, love others as I have loved you. You know, Jesus said this in John chapter 12. He says, if anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. So the question is this. Are we demonstrating in our lives an authentic faith in what Christ has said and done? We are to love as Christ loved. We are to forgive as Christ forgave us. We're to show mercy as Christ has shown mercy to us. If we don't show mercy, we will not be shown mercy on that day of judgment. That's what it says here. Judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. If we do not show mercy... We are showing that we have not truly 
received mercy. We're showing that we do not have an authentic faith and do not know God despite what we may say about our faith. Why of faith? That's what James talks about here in these verses that come after this. It doesn't matter what you say about your faith. If you, if you don't show mercy, if you don't show love, you don't have the real thing. You do not have it. What, what the Bible's talking about when it's talking about faith in Christ. Jesus taught this over and over again. It's incredible that we could miss it. And I say, again, a lot of modern-day Christianity misses it. They think, well, justification by faith means I put my faith in Christ and I just go on and live the way I've always lived. Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And the idea there, only they shall receive mercy. Again, you remember in his teaching there, these are from the Sermon on the Mount, his teaching related to how we should pray. And he teaches the disciples there in that disciples' prayer that uh, they should ask for forgiveness for their sins as they forgive others. And then he closes, after he teaches that prayer, he says this, For if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Just, you couldn't say it any plainer. If you don't forgive, you are not going to be a forgiven person. Again, in the Sermon on the Mount, do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. So those were some quotes from the Sermon on the Mount. But he puts it all together in another time where he gave very similar teaching. I just thought I would read this because it kind of encapsulates the whole thing here. This is in Luke chapter 6, verses 36 through 38. Be merciful. Just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour it in your lap, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. This is what, this is what these verses are all about. By your standard of measure, if you're not merciful, you're not going to find mercy on that day. And then, just to make it as clear as possible, Jesus gives this illustration in Matthew 18, where he talks about this king who's settling accounts with his slaves. And he calls this one slave before him that owed him millions of dollars. You remember the account. And the, the, the slave pled with him and he said, I forgive you those, that debt. And that slave goes out and find, finds a fellow slave that owed him a piddly little amount and he would not forgive that slave. And then Jesus says this. This is what he taught from this. 
Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pled with me. Should you not also have mercy on your fellow slave in the same way I had mercy on you? That's what we're talking about here, you see. God has forgiven us, mercifully forgiven us, our great debt. And if we turn around and don't show mercy to people, what can you say? You'd say what Jesus said. You're a wicked slave. You're a wicked disciple. You're not really a disciple. And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that he owed. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you. This is what he's saying. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. That's just another way of saying judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. By your standard of measure, it shall be measured to you. Now, what we're looking at here is one way to understand what hell is all about. The punishment of hell. It's a place where there's no mercy. That time is gone, see. And the, the principle is, show no mercy now, get no mercy then. So the question here for me and for you, what standard of measure are you and I showing to other people? Can I really pray... Father, be merciful to me, a sinner, if I won't be merciful to that person next to me or that person that's wronged me. The Bible is clear. All of us, all people, and that includes Christians, will give an account of what they've done in this life. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Appearing before the judgment seat of Christ, that's what we're talking about in these verses here. Judged by the law of liberty. Being judged by the law of liberty. Jesus said this, for the Son of Man is going to come in his glory, the glory of his Father with his angels and will repay every man according to his deeds. And they said this, do, mar- do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, hear Christ's voice, and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. And then in the last book of the Bible, right in the last chapter, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to to render to every man according to what he's done. So you can't miss it. You can't miss it. There's going to be a a day when we stand before Christ and we'll give an account of our deeds in the body. Specifically, we as professing Christians will give an account of whether we have lived by Christ's royal law, the law of liberty. The royal law of love 
as, as taught and lived by Christ, that's the rule of the church. That's what we go by. If we make a practice of making unrighteous judgments about people or in some other way practicing an unmerciful lifestyle, an unloving lifestyle, we demonstrate that we are not doers of the word and that will be evidence on that day that our supposed faith in Christ was false. On the other hand, if we have an authentic faith which practices forgiveness and love and mercy to others, we'll find on that day of judgment that mercy triumphs over judgment. Freedom from the condemnation of sin does not produce lawlessness in the life of God's people. It produces love. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, if you just read that little phrase by itself, you might say, well, that's talking about God's mercy, mercy triumphing over judgment. And commentators do disagree as to whether James is speaking in this last phrase of mercy that we've shown during our life, which will be used as evidence of our true faith on judgment day, which is the position I'm taking and have taken here or whether it's speaking of God's mercy in Christ, which is the only ground of our triumphing over judgment. In other words, the question is, is James, in this last phrase here, mercy triumphs over judgment, is James referring to our mercy or God's mercy? And like I say, some writers, some commentators say it must be God's mercy because otherwise it would seem to be allowing for human merit in our salvation. Well, I think that's a wrong understanding. That's not what James is saying. Uh, To me, it is clear that James is referring primarily to our mercy because he's dealing with our doing the the will of God and our doing the will of God. But I think it's possible to combine the two mercies. That's what we have to do, I think, when we're thinking about this phrase, mercy triumphs. Over judgment, because our mercy is 100% a response to and a result of his mercy. We do not earn his mercy by our mercy. The whole idea of earned mercy is a contradiction in terms there can't be such a thing as an earned mercy. If mercy is earned, it's not mercy, it'd be a wage. So we're not talking about any kind of salvation by works, but a salvation that does works, that does work, and those works will be evident on the last day. That's what James is talking about here. The mercy produced in the heart and life of a believer is there by the mercy of God in Christ. What James is saying is that our words and actions of mercy, though never perfect, will nevertheless be evidence of an authentic faith in the perfect mercies that God has shown us in Christ. That's what he's saying. I'm convinced that he's bringing in the reality of the fact that the evidence of a true conversion will be able to be displayed on that day. 
sacrificial, Christ-like love which seeks to help those in real need, bearing one another's burdens, thus fulfilling the law of Christ, is the intent of the royal law, the law of Christ, and one of the great measures of authentic faith. Mercy will substantially replace selfishness and lovelessness in the way we live, if we have an authentic faith. I chose those words carefully. It's hard to know how to word that. We know, we can, we know we're not perfect in this. We know we fail constantly in this. But nevertheless, there will be a substantial replacement of, of selfishness with love in the true Christian. Because Christ lives in you. That's what faith does. It unites you to Christ. A merciful attitude will be evident in how we speak and act in this life and will be evidence on that great day of judgment of the reality of our faith in Christ and our union with him. Judgment will be merciless to the one who's shown no mercy but for the one who truly trusts Christ and therefore is a doer of the law of liberty, mercy will triumph over judgment. Christ died for this. He loved us so that we might become loving people. He forgave us so that we might become forgiving people. He was merciful to us so that we might become merciful people. Faith unites us with Christ and he progressively works this character in and through our lives. Now, I'm sure that on the day of judgment we'll still need plenty of God's mercy even on that day. But when the book's are all opened, we'll all see that faith in Christ really did produce mercy and forgiveness and love in the lives of God's people. That's what we'll see on that day. That it was, it was real. That the work of Christ really does change people. Now, I like the way John Piper puts this in relationship to this day of judgment and uh, these verses here. He says, When God asks for a record of your mercy at the judgment day, he will not be asking for a punched time card. You won't say, Here it is. Here's my eight hours of mercy. Now what wages do I get? He said, It won't be like that. Instead, God will be asking for your medical chart. You will hand them to him in lowliness and meekness, and there he will read the evidences of how you trusted him as your divine physician and how the medicine of his word and the therapy of his spirit took effect in your life because you relied on them to heal you of your unmerciful disposition. And when he sees the evidence of your faith and his healing, he will complete your healing 
and welcome you into his kingdom forever. Only Piper could come up with that. (laughs) So, again, we're not talking about perfection, but we are talking about something that's real in our lives, taking place right now. And it's, it's substantial enough that it will be able to be brought forth as evidence on that day. I want to read one other uh, writer on this subject. This man said, Only the powerful new covenant ministry of the Spirit. is sufficient to enable us in some small measure to love as Christ loved and thus to fulfill the law of Christ. For this reason, all Christians should come repeatedly to their Heavenly Father asking and seeking and knocking for more of the Holy Spirit's presence and power in our lives. If you want to know more about that, you could you have the privilege of talking to the author because that was from Charles's book on on the law of Christ. <clears throat> he has shown the old man what is good. And what does the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? I'll close by just reading these two verses again. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. May you and I, by the grace and power of God, more and more become merciful people.